This is exactly right. Welcome to My Favorite Murder. That's Georgia Hardstart. Thank you. That's Karen Kilgariff. You're welcome. (laughs) This is a podcast. And here you are. We are going to tell you true crime stories. Yep. That's our interest. That's ours. We're also going to tell you about our other interests, which is our own lives. Uh, And ourselves. And ourselves. And you will be a part of it also. Peripherally. Quietly. (laughs) I mean, feel free to talk out loud. We can't hear you. You absolutely should. Yeah. Especially if you're on a bus or a train. Yep. Or at the gym. You, uh, are people going to the gym these days? I Perhaps those um, roofless gyms oh. that they like to do in the Midwest. Oh. You know, I think some people go on parks. <laughs> you just have to bring a hot dish to the gym. <laughs> yeah. What if you had to be on a treadmill eating a hot dish at the same time? Just some nice all grout and potatoes oh. while you do 45 tight oh. minutes at a 4.3. <laughs> God damn. Get that heart rate up. I gotta get my heart rate up. Mm, I need to get my heart rate up. What are other ways to get our heart rates up besides uh, getting on a treadmill? Uh, sex. Take that out. <laughs> I don't want to talk about sex. No, girl. Now you have uh, to this is, watch our numbers shoot through the sky. <laughs> talk about it. Why did my brain go there automatically? <laughs> do it let's talk about you and me let's talk about you and me that's, that's right, right. <laughs> it's my favorite sexual position ew gross uh, that's disgusting no one wants to hear it look listen there's a whole podcast app filled with those you can go elsewhere definitely have fun don't go i mean stick around for a minute no, please we have great sexy stuff to talk about it's just not intercourse related <laughs> it's not and it's also not that sexy so no. those are your interests we got them if you like the push and pull of non-sexy uh bummer shit mm-hmm. hello and welcome. Maybe that's sexy on its own. And it's own. what are we even talking about? I don't point? know. We're just trying. We're trying to improv and go with the theme. <laughs> My dog won't stop licking the couch. It's true. It's his nervous kind of. You know, he gets nervous too. Yeah. For us. He listens to these intros and goes, <laughs> "I don't know what you're doing, but will we be able to pay the rent next month?" <laughs> Frank, this, you're this fine. can't last. This you're can't fine. last. Mom is going to lose the house. I don't know. I have to go back to eating out of the garbage. I just don't want to live outside anymore. No. So I don't know how to handle this. So I just lick. That's all I can control. I just lick surfaces. Look, we've all been there, Frank. It's not like we don't understand. Frank is accepting the things he cannot change. <laughs> He has the courage to change the things he can, which is the dampness of your couch. And the wisdom to lick the difference. <laughs> there he is. That's our boy. Good boy, Frank. You're fine. Um, George is slowly and politely picking up everything <laughs> and getting it away from him. Yeah. He, doesn't he just keeps it. coming closer and closer to me. Yeah. It's kind of like his job. I don't know. Good for him. I don't know. What Somehow this is our job, kind of. I mean... Can you believe? Can you believe that on this podcast, one of the things I wrote down, it just says air fryer. 
Because that's kind of all I want to talk about these days. What did you get one? I got an air fryer. Okay, tell me all about it. You have one? No. Life changing. Why? Well, it's just really cool. It's not really life changing. <laughs> but it's great. I mean, it's just so, it's fun. You got to get one. What do you air fry? I air fry anything frozen you buy it, like Trader Joe's or whatever. You air fry it and it's 10 times better. Or like if you want to make like Brussels sprouts, it makes them 10 times. Why? I sound like an infomercial. I like it though. It Sell me. It's the best. And then you can like, like meatloaf in it and like fried chicken in it and like all kinds of things in it. Um, I feel so. This was basically the trend thing after Instapots, right? Yes. Like this was because it's I'm, healthy. I'm late into the game. Okay. Yes. All right. Yes. But now I found it and I love it, and it's my new hobby. <laughs> I'm having a recovered memory that our friend Dave Holmes, mm-hmm. and not not to be side pluggy, right? But the host of Waiting for Impact, which just premiered on yeah. our uh our, our newest original limited series. He once told me all about it and was giving me recipes and yes. so excited about his air fryer. That's my late night scroll now is what can I cook in the air fryer? And I'm waiting for like the next like you can cook hard boiled eggs without being boiled. I guess you could take that word out of there. But in the air fryer in like eight minutes with no fuss. Are they crispy? No. They're just like <laughs> perfectly cooked. OK. It's not frying it for you. It's almost like a toaster oven. Oh, okay. You know what I mean? It's not like oil or anything like that. Okay. Because I was like, I love fried things. So this sounds great. No, like today I ate like frozen taquitos and frozen spanakopita in the air fryer. And they're like crispy and brown. And like, you know, like if you cook them in the microwave, they're chewy. Yes. You're never going to cook them in the oven because if you want a snack, you're not going to cook frozen food in the oven that's going to take fucking forever yeah it's 25 minutes mince yeah so this is the my, my new hobby um god that's well it sounds really good my thing is because i don't cook because it always it's it's been 50 years it always sneaks up on me like dinner is oh, yeah. a surprise every <laughs> night every night around 6 30 i'm like what's this weird feeling am oh. i gonna start crying oh it's dinner oh, time my. i'm the same way with breakfast where it's like why am i gonna faint at noon every day yeah because you started with coffee and then yes. you forgot to and i yeah. kept going with coffee yeah it's it's very strange so i want to be i want to fold some new like gadget in that somehow is going to quote unquote make it easier or better. Here you go. Do you think that's it though? Because I just think I'm not going to use it. You probably won't, <laughs> but it's cute. So you can just have it on the counter anyways. It's not like it's a burden. Wouldn't this be compelling if this was on QVC of like, you probably yes. won't use this, but imagine <laughs> when your friends see it on your counter. Mine is seafoam color. <laughs> Shockingly. So I don't care if I use it or not. It's a cute seafoam appliance. Seafoam is my color for everything. Is that why you bought it? No, I bought, I went to buy one. Then I was like, holy crap, they have seafoam. So of course I'm going to get it. <laughs> Your whole life is seafoam. Color my life seafoam and call me happy or something. What is your, what would you say your number one favorite thing is fried hard boiled eggs? I haven't done that yet. I think, oh, breaded fried ravioli. Oh shit. Then you dip that motherfucker in some fucking pasta sauce. And this is healthy. I mean, it's as healthy as toasted fried ravioli is. No, it's not. It doesn't make it healthier. Okay. It doesn't make anything healthier. That's not the point. It's just a different way of cooking. Right. So you could make frozen fries in the air fryer. It's not going to make those fries healthier. Okay. Than if you put them in the oven. Got it. I think. It's just easier, quicker, like smaller, faster. Yes. Got it. Crispier. Crispier for sure. Oh, that's good. I'm going to get you one. 
Okay. <laughs> Expect one. Someone's got a Christmas coming up. <laughs> Ow. Just hit my face on the microphone. Mm. And that's good podcasting. And that is fun podcasting. <laughs> Those sex podcasts won't, won't <laughs> be hitting their... Well. Um, you think they talk about air fryers on sex podcasts? <laughs> no. You think they're supposed to talk about them on murder podcasts? Probably not. I don't think so. <laughs> Actually, compared to other. Here's what I would like to say. We talked extensively about being sent a box of books yes. um, from a bookstore where they were clearing out their true crime section. And a, a listener was like, I thought you should have these. And the who would appreciate them more? We both did appreciate them, but we didn't save the box or the letter, mm -hmm. of course, because we've only been doing this for five years. <laughs> How would we know to do anything like that? Well, lucky for you and me, I, mean, yeah. I don't. <laughs> Uh, like I basically put the garbage around the corner, oh. and that so anytime I get stuff from Amazon, I'm like, I'm just gonna bring this down, put it by yes. the garbage cans, and I'll break it down later. Yes. What's what we do? Okay, good. I do it all the time, and then one day I go down with a with a yes. box cutter and just go to town. Just fucking have that moment of uh, uh, take your aggression. Yes. Well, I was doing that, and I found the box. Yes, I found it, and I'm so this is a guess, but I think I'm 95 percent right that. We got sent those books from Jessica Webb from North Carolina. There she is. It was just sitting there taped to the front of a box and it was to Karen in Georgia. And then it said from Jessica Webb. And I thought that is the loving bookstore employee who sent us those wonderful true crime books. Right now I'm reading a Ted Bundy book that I've never Ooh. read before that is so detailed <gasps> and so good. Wow. I'll talk about it when I'm done. I'm like halfway through. That's so surprising because you like that's one of those cases where you think you know every single fucking thing about it. Yeah. And then you read another account and you're like, oh, I only know Ann Rule's account. Yes. So Ann Rule's in there. These are the guys that interviewed him once he was in jail. Oh. So at first I was I was reading it thinking I'm going to stop reading this because it's going to be too Ted Bundy centered. Yeah. And I Fuck don't that guy. give a shit what yeah. he thinks about his murders or what, like who right. cares. But it's not like that. Is it like a study of a sociopath kind of a thing or a psychopath? Uh, I guess. Well, it's just. The story kind of really detailed so far. I'm only ha yeah. I just began, but it's it really is just like almost like month by month how it all went down wow. and just the way like the different things that went on. Like, you know, and I want to say it's Lake Sammamish. Yes, yes, yes. Is yes. how it's pronounced where he where he kidnapped the two. Young women? Yes. Two women in one day, which is insane, but it was so crowded there. There was an undercover narc there that <gasps> day, but that person was looking for yeah. people selling drugs. Right. So they they actually did have an, a, like an official eyewitness on the ground. How insane is it that he kidnapped one woman, drove away with her, came back. So the theory is that something happened and it didn't go the way he wanted it to go. So he, ha he wasn't satisfied, came back and... and same day. I mean, it's just he was berserking. Yeah, he, he was in it full monster mode and like just and a he predator. Had, and he had no, I, no question that he would get away with it in his mind. 
No, because he had been getting away yeah. with it. And also he was dressed like he was like a, a tennis coach. Totally. That's the creepiest thing is like, can you help me with my boat? My arm is broken. My um, my arm is broken. Can you help me with my boat? And I'm kind of like, might be a rich guy. Yeah. And I'm really charming. Yeah. The, all the eyewitness women were just like, yeah, you'd never. He was really nice. He was very good looking. Yeah. You just thought he was some nice guy. Well, when you're done... When you need a break from that, I have a movie to suggest. Mm. Like when you're like, holy shit, I need to put this down for a minute. Oh, to counter? Yes. Let's hear it. Okay. So my nephew, Micah, came, he's 11, came over the other day. We ate Carl's Jr. (laughs) Watched Tommy Boy, of course, (laughs) because you have to. Of course. And then we watched this movie that he's like, put this on. I love it. It's called Hunt for the Wilder People. (gasps) Do you know it? It's um, the New Zealand guys. Take a Watiti. Yes. From 2016. And of course, and it's Sam starring Sam Neill. And then the kid who's in it, it's like this 13 year old kid is in foster care. He goes to live with Sam Neill and his wife. And the kid is named Julian Dennison. And they kind of like, they go live and get stranded in the New Zealand wilderness. And there's like a manhunt to find them because they, they think that the kid got kidnapped. But really, he's like, they're having the most fun and bonding. And there's like, it's the fucking sweetest, cutest, like feel goodiest movie. Oh my God. I love Micah's movie corner. <laughs> That's a great idea. <laughs> like, yes, I want to know what an 11 year old likes. Well, the problem here is that he likes horror movies normally. <laughs> and so we put on Friday the 13th for three minutes where I said, Micah, I can't fucking watch this with you. So then he was like, all right, I'll I'll downshift into ant mode. Tommy boy. Yes. He definitely downshifted for me. He watched Squid Games. <gasps> He's watched fucking everything. Like all those. <laughs> He's just in it all. Yeah. My brother is like a grown child. So, yeah, you know. Well, but that's good, though. That means he has taste yeah. and there's a true range. Yeah. Boy, so. He's into video games and stuff like that. So yeah. I guess. Horror movies are his new jam. Of course. I think that, but look, what age were you when you started reading Stephen King? Totally. You would have, you would have been doing the same things that modern day kids are doing. Well, we did watch all of those. It was just somehow okay back then, but now we're a little wiser as to things that terrify children. And so we're not supposed to be watching fucking Nightmare on Elm Street and all that shit. But at the same time, you know, he's like, this is an LA kid. So he's like, they shot that down the street. You know. (laughs) Right. Right. Or he's like, this is, he says like, they're so campy because they're from the eight. He likes (laughs) 80s ones because they look so stupid. (laughs) So he's not watching Saw or anything like that. He's aware of how fake it is. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. There's a little distance. But then he likes a nice jump scare every once in a while. Sure. But he's not allowed to listen to this podcast. He can listen to the beginning. His mom lets him listen to the beginning. (laughs) He's like, this is the boring part. I don't want to hear about air fryers. (laughs) Yeah. He's seriously like, why why in the world? Yeah. Why in the world? Oh, that's awesome. I love that. I'm trying to think of what I've been watching. A Finnish procedural, I believe it was called Arctic Circle. And it literally takes place in Lapland, which my friend, the hilarious comedian Lynn Shawcroft, who herself Uh is from Canada, that used to be a reference she would make sometimes, but it was the way she said it with her Canadian expert. She go, she, it was, if somebody had like a really big, weird sweater on, Uh because in LA there's almost no reason to ever wear a sweater Uh -uh. unless it's like deep January. Um, she'd be like, Oh, I like your sweater. Are you from Lapland? <laughs> that <laughs> sounds so far away. And like, it's truly, it's like where reindeer are from. They, it's whoa. where they say where Santa Claus is from. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Lapland. Oh, your it's friend like Santa. Way up there. Yeah. Arctic Circle, I believe it's called. Oh. It, there's something about 
those foreign procedurals, they truly just, they soothe my soul. They do. It's like a, a big cup of cocoa for your soul. I think I also tell myself, like, I'm learning about Finland if I watch it. Definitely. Let's say that. Or Lapland. Or Lapland. Lapland. <laughs> you know, Lapland. Where sweaters are com- come from. Here's another great Lynn Shawcroft quote. <laughs> we got out of a, par- a car one time. We were headed to our friend's party, and the the party was taking place on the front patio. Uh-huh. Maybe I told you this already. Okay. And right as we were getting out, like we parked on the <laughs> on the cul-de-sac. Uh-huh. And so we're walking up to the party, but we can hear it all. And so it's like you can hear everybody talking and then someone laughs. It's this super obnoxious laugh. And she turns to me and goes, I didn't know there'd be a toucan at this party. <laughs> and that is exactly what it sounded like. It's like, ah! <laughs> it was so fucking hilarious. That reminds me of Bojack Horseman because in that scene, it would have been a toucan. <laughs> yes, exactly. It really was like some obnoxious hipster toucan. Speaking of TV shows you're watching, I was con- a bunch of people commented that when I when you were talking about Working Moms, and I was like, yeah, I totally watched it. It wasn't. It was um, from Australia called The Letdown. That oh. I'd watched and it's really good. So. You did a little combo. Yeah. The, it's like, <laughs> I just think moms <laughs> with new babies and how hard it is. They're both about like how hard it is to be a new mom with a baby. Yes. And so the one I watched was just from a different place. The letdown. The letdown. It's charming as fuck. I loved it. Oh, okay. Um, I have to watch it. That's it. Okay. That's like an accidental recommendation. Yeah. Love it. Uh, okay. Want to do a quick, exactly right media network highlight? Yes. Stocks and bonds. <laughs> How we're doing on the... uh... Let's tell everyone what stocks and bonds to buy. (laughs) Um, This week on Parent Footprint with my cousin, Dr. Dan. Mm -hmm. I have to mention that every time because I just love it. Credit. That's right. Um, So he has guest Jane Allen on and she's the author of the novel Black Girls Must Die Exhausted. She's this incredible entrepreneur. She's a Harvard trained attorney. She's an engineer also dabbles in stand-up comedy. She's just this incredible woman. She does it all. So he interviews her. I definitely check out Parent Footprint. Just all the back episodes are incredible. He's a very talented man and a real doctor. Yeah. An actual doctor. <laughs> That's right. This week on Do You Need a Ride with Chris Fairbanks and Karen Kilgariff, mm. we have the great comedian and also entrepreneur, Dave Ross. <laughs> um, <laughs> he had a bit of cold or a oh. fever, oh. Um, <laughs> which was kind of hilarious. And it ended in one of the funniest slash dumbest things we've ever done on that podcast, which is he started making us fake logos for the podcast on a like a college mascot generator yeah and it was really hilarious it went on for 11 minutes we had to cut it down to two minutes because (laughs) there's fever dream it was all visual like it was us laughing at dumb shit and then trying to describe it while we laughed it was so stupid i bet it was hilarious because you got the three of you guys are such fucking great comedians dave ross is so funny he's the funniest it was it's very fun i mean like it just you know it was a real good time you guys have fun on that podcast you know what i like to do sometimes what riff and have fun. <laughs> oh, I you've turned me into a toucan. Was it a toucan? <laughs> yeah. There you go. And then on the podcast True Beauty Brooklyn, they have guest Sally Olivia Kim, who's the founder of Crushed Tonic. So make sure there's so many good episodes of True Beauty Brooklyn. Yeah, it's a great podcast. That podcast is doing a bunch of stuff because everybody thinks it's a beauty podcast. Right. But it is so much more than that. Yeah. I do definitely just go check it out and see they're having very cool, important conversations over there. Definitely. Definitely. Um, and then also be sure to follow Exactly Right on Instagram, Twitter and 
and Facebook for updates on all of our shows. You know, sometimes you just need an update. You want to know what's going on. Sure. Be kept in the loop. Maybe we'll talk about air fryers on Instagram one day. <laughs> so you don't want to miss that. So make sure you follow exactly right. You do, you have to be updated on yeah. all of the different trinkets. That's right. And different kind of... Um, it's it's kind of a Bed Bath & Beyond podcast deep down. It's become that. Stay for the other podcasts. Come for the... Uh, bed Bath Recap. <laughs> That's us. Man, I love a Bed Bath & Beyond, don't you? Here's the thing. I really do... And I don't need almost anything Nothing. in that store. Nothing. But especially if I get to the like the 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 bath toiletry area mm-hmm. where they have like hot combs and stuff where yeah. I'm like, I have to get that. What and if it's, it's the best? What if it changes my life? What if this is the thing that makes my hair work? Like <laughs> my thing is the fucking end caps of as seen on TV where I'm oh. like, I've never seen on that on TV, but I need it yep. now. Yes. That's where you get like, it's a light up mirror right. that has then different shades of light based on different cities around the world or whatever. <laughs> where you're... And tells you what time they're there. <laughs> out right now so just so you have it in your head here's what your pores look like at 3 30 <laughs> in paris enjoy <laughs> um okay what else do you have i think it's time to go let's do it you want to end the podcast yeah. now okay, we're, we're on a high note bye <laughs> is it you it is i'm okay. first all right fine and it's a bit long that's why i'm i'm saying maybe we should get right okay. to it you know, I have nothing else to talk about unless you want me to make some shit up. So. Okay, yeah. I, I mean, uh, I've been, like, going to dinner here and there at places that have patios. Been to the movie theater, which is still weird when you have to wear your mask the whole time. Should you go to the loungy one where you can order, like, a cheese plate and shit? No. No. Gotta. I like to go to the Grove. Oh. Um, Because I like to pretend the Grove is actually a little town. Oh, it is so cute, though. That That's just overly populated. It's very dense. Yeah, and, and like a, a little annoying. Little no- like everyone in the town needs to take pictures in front of a fountain. <laughs> Every no one in the town walks over too. S- my I don't know how cool <laughs> slow walking is. How slow it's is really walking. slow. Everyone walks slow. It's slow, and there's a trolley. Ugh, and watch out for that trolley. The trolley could kill you. The trolley could absolutely kill you, or at least give you a nice lawsuit settlement. <laughs> Got it. Now I'm starting to think about. Remember when you did the? You covered all the weird, creepy things that have happened in Disneyland. Yes. Like what? What weird, creepy things have happened in the Grove, and they won't talk about it. Cover up. It goes all the way. Do they have their own like <gasps> uh, jail? Yeah, yeah, for shoplifters, must, right? For shoplifters, shoplifters are people that get drunk at that one restaurant. Totally, and they fall out into the street and then start trying to punch other dads. Or Early whatever. afternoon Chardonnays, and then they're fucking fighting. I bet intense shit. I want to list like the most intense shit that's happened at the Grove. <laughs> <laughs> or for, or if you're listening now and you've seen some intense shit that's happened at your fancy outdoor mall yeah. in your hometown. We all have them. Or nearby. Let's hear about it. Definitely tell us those stories. My favorite murder at Gmail. Like, um, yeah, if you like if someone ran out of a shop and then somebody from a different shop wrestled them to the ground. Yeah, which you're not supposed to do. But really, you're not supposed to. There like became a law where you're if you work at a store, you're not supposed to chase or like stop a shoplifter unless it's like for them to be like. Your shoplifting come back in, but they can't touch them. Really? Just to let it go. Yeah, because I'm. there were lawsuits, I think, of like someone got tackled or whatever. For a $35 shirt. Yeah. And then they sued the shit out of the fucking company. Oh, man. That yeah. doesn't seem right. 
Or like the security guard got shot because, or like the employee got shot because they were trying to stop a robbery. Oh, right. And they were like, yeah, by any means necessary. That makes sense. You're not allowed to do that. Yeah. Don't, don't put your, don't put it all on the line for J. Crew. No. I mean, or even a bank. They're insured. Like just hand the money over. They're all insured. Don't be a hero. Ready? Yeah. (laughs) Are we done? (laughs) What were you saying about not knowing what to talk about? Well, we just did it. We did. We always do. Hey, Karen, you know that feeling when you're stressed out and your heart starts to pound and your mind is racing? I do. I know it well. Well, while there's no cure for stress, therapy can help shape your response to it. And since May is Mental Health Awareness Month, there's no better time to try Talkspace. When you sign up for Talkspace, you'll receive a personalized match with a therapist or psychologist, typically within 48 hours. Forbes rates Talkspace as the number one online therapy platform, plus their licensed professionals are in network with almost all major insurance companies. Once you meet your therapy goals, or if you want to cancel for any reason, Talkspace will provide you with a prorated refund for unused time. I feel like these days people understand the importance of therapy, but the difficult part is just taking that first step. It took me months to make my first therapy appointment. I was so scared. I had a lot of ideas in my head about it. And that's why I think Talkspace is such a good idea, because making it so approachable will just get you there sooner. Then you can actually get in there, figure out what you need, talk to an actual professional, and be on your way to solving some stuff that you might want to solve. To celebrate Mental Health Awareness Month and the power of talking it out in therapy, Talkspace is offering our listeners $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80. Go to Talkspace.com slash MFM and use promo code SPACE80. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash MFM and enter promo code SPACE80 and get $80 off your first month and show your support for our show. That's Talkspace.com slash MFM. Enter promo code space 80. Goodbye. Georgia, have you ever been blown away by the most simple dish at a restaurant? Like perfectly scrambled eggs? Oh my God. Yes, Karen. And then all I want to do is make that dish at home and eat it every day. Well, you probably could as long as you have the chef's secret ingredient made in cookware. Made in was created to bring restaurant quality performance kitchenware to home chefs around the world. For years, they've built their business by supplying restaurants and top chefs with high-end cookware. Some of Tom Colicchio's most treasured dishes at his restaurant craft are made in Made In. Whether you're cooking for professional critics or just the critics you live with, your meals will benefit from the quality of Made In products. Like their carbon steel cookware, it combines the best of both cast iron and stainless steel clad, so it's It's rugged enough for grills or an open flame. It's the MVP of summer cookouts and cook-ins. What I really love about made-in cookware is that it actually makes something like having a Memorial Day barbecue much more convenient because you can keep everything on the grill. If you need to throw, say, a pan of garlic up on the top while you're grilling your steaks on the bottom, it's strong enough, durable enough to do that. If you want to take your cooking to the next level, remember what so many great dishes have in common. They're all made in, made in. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from May 18th through May 27th when you visit madeincookware.com. That's M-A-D-E-I-N cookware.com. Goodbye. This week, I am covering one of the most kind of elaborate and confusing and ultimately, I pre-warn you, very unsatisfying of unsolved murders. These are the murders of Rhonda Renee Johnson and Sharon Shaw. 
Okay, so he, the, the sources for the story, um, Unsolved Mysteries, mm-hmm. uh, season five, episode 24. That's on Amazon Prime if you mm-hmm. want to watch it. There's a book by an author named Jamie Foster called Murder in Texas, the true story of Rhonda Johnson and Sharon Shaw. Um, there's an article from the Houston Chronicle by a writer named Lise Olson or Lisa, L-I-S-E titled Some Suspect Serial Killer in 1971 Galveston Deaths. There's Self versus State Court of Appeals Case Brief. Jay went into the case briefs on Whoa. this. Yeah. And then the Wikipedia page Murders of Rhonda Johnson and Sharon Shaw. Lise Olson also wrote an article for the Houston Chronicle, Confessions of a Cold-Blooded Killer. And there's an Unsolved Mysteries wiki with no author listed, but it talks about the case of Rhonda Johnson and Sharon Shaw. Okay, so this story begins in Webster, Texas on August 4th, 1971. So two friends, 15-year-old Sharon Shaw and Mm. 14-year-old Rhonda, although she liked to be called Renee Johnson, they decide to spend the day water skiing at Wicks Water Ski School on Offit's Bayou in Galveston, which is 20 miles south of Webster. Um, so they hitch a ride with one of Sharon's neighbors and they go down to Galveston. But when they get there, the wind is too rough to actually go water skiing. So they end up spending the day at the beach instead. And when they get to the beach, they run into their friend, Glenda Willis. And she offers to give him a ride back home. But Sharon and Renee aren't ready to leave. They want to stay at the beach a little longer. So they say no. And Glenda leaves without them. Mm. I hate those moments in I these know. stories. It's they hard. were such babies, too. Babies. 14 and 15. Yeah. It's very sad. So later that evening, between 8 and 9 o'clock, Sharon and Renee are spotted by eyewitnesses walking to the Jericho Surf and Ski Shop that's on Seawall Boulevard. And that is the last time that they're seen alive. Mm -hmm. So that evening, when neither girls return home, their parents promptly call the police and report them missing. Both Sharon and Renee are they're known as being adventurous. They're tomboy types. And their friend Glenda remembers them as being totally fearless. Actually, Glenda and some other friends think maybe Sharon and Renee have run away to California. Yeah. But since Renee is the granddaughter of a prominent local city councilman in Webster, who actually will later go on to become the mayor, the search for the girls is made very high priority. But even with that special attention, they, there's no sign of Renee or Sharon. They can't find any clues at all. Mm-hmm. So then about five months later, on January 3rd, 1972, two boys are boating in Taylor Bayou, which is north of Clear Lake, which is just east of Webster. And they spot something strange in the water. They go over to check it out. They think it might be a volleyball, but it's Um, actually a human skull. Yeah. So the boys contact the police. Um, The police start searching the area. And this search ends up lasting for six weeks um, because it's all bayou and marshland, you know, around this lake. They finally find the rest of this body that belongs to the skull in a marsh by the lake. And then a second body is recovered as well. They're both significantly decayed, but with the help of dental records and a recognizable cross necklace wrapped around one of the victim's jaw bones, the bodies are finally identified as Sharon Shaw and Renee Johnson. So I'll tell you a little bit about them. There's their school pictures from the 70s. So they have... Very, very 70s like hair, but you can tell they're beachy. You can tell they're surf girls, water skiing girls. 
Sharon Shaw was born August 11th, 1957 in Mobile, Alabama. She's the daughter of Hoyt and Marianne Shaw. Um, this family makes their way to Webster, Texas when Sharon's little and later she then meets her friend Rhonda Renee Johnson. So Renee Johnson, she was born in Houston on December 16th, 1956 to Charles Sr. and Betty Johnson. And her grandfather is the well-known Webster City Councilman who will later become the mayor. And the girls are known to be bright and, as their friend Glenda said, fearless. Mm -hmm. They love to hang out by the beach and on Texas's southeastern shores, and they often hitchhike their way around the area, which is, of course, it's early 70s, so yeah. very common around them. Plus, when you're 13 and 14 and or 14 and 15 and fearless, you know, I mean, like, I would have hitchhiked at four. We used to take the bus half an hour to Newport Beach, which was pretty fucking shady at the time. Yeah. We would have hitchhiked home. Some hot, like, surfer dude was like, do you want to ride home? Yeah. Sure. Yeah, of course. And also, I think it's at that time where it's like, yeah, if you are see yourself as a surfer girl or that, you know, you're in this you're in this certain clique. Yeah. Then it's super worth it to leave your little Texas town oh, to yeah. get to the beach, to get to that area and hang out. And apparently in that area where this water ski school was, it was that's what everyone around there was doing. Yeah. It was very 70s. And yeah. So in May of 1972, the Webster City Council hires a new police chief named Don Morris and an, a new assistant chief named Tommy Deal. So both Morris and Deal come over from the traffic division of the Texas Department of Public Safety, and they both get right into the investigation of Sharon and Renee's case. Within the first three weeks of taking their new jobs, Morris and Deal get a tip on a suspect from a city councilman named Glenn Price. He tells them to check out the area's known sex offenders list and he specifically pinpoints one man by name 23 year old michael lloyd self so michael self is a gas station attendant in webster he's recently been arrested on two different peeping tom incidents mm. but has since been released and he's known to have a very low iq um, so around five in the morning on June 9th, 1972, Tommy Deal and another police officer named Herman Morgan pay Michael Self a visit at the gas station where he's wrapping up his night shift. And they pull up to the pump that Michael Self is working at. And they say that they know he's been, quote unquote, thinking about two girls. So Michael Self has recently gotten a divorce mm -hmm. and and then begun dating a new woman. So he assumes that these officers are talking about his ex and his new girlfriend. Mm -hmm. So he confirms that, yes, he has indeed been thinking about two girls, not understanding that they are referring to Sharon Shaw and Renee Johnson. What a weird way to open that line of questioning up. Yes. And I think it kind of does indicate how much any average person i think would just be like sorry i don't know what you're talking about right. but he assumes and maybe also because it's this small town but he just assumes that they all understand right it's like oh you do know what i'm thinking of yeah because you have a low iq so you don't you can't reason that right okay so officers deal and morgan say they'd like to speak with michael self further so self willingly goes with the officers to the police station for questioning once he gets there they show him pictures of sharon and renee and they ask if he knows them and he says yes he does know them and he names them huh. they arrest him on the spot and they pull him into an interrogation room for questioning so officer deal and 
The other officer asks Michael if he murdered Sharon and Renee, but Michael swears up and down that he has had nothing to do with their deaths. Deal bluffs and says that they have evidence connecting Michael's self to the murder, but Michael maintains that he did not kill the girls. During questioning, Officer Jerry Mitchell stops by to observe. He knows Michael's self from around town, Mm -hmm. and he notes that even though Michael's hands are handcuffed behind his back, he seems relaxed. He's not nervous. He's answering all of Deal's questions. And then after Officer Mitchell steps out, Chief of Police, this new Chief of Police, Don Morris, shows up. He asks Deal to leave so that he can continue questioning Michael on his own. Uh-uh. So so he does. And so then Don Morris starts asking self about the murders. But this time, and this is all according to Michael's self after the fact, uh-huh. when he again says he doesn't know anything about the murders, Morris picks him up, pushes him against the wall, and then starts shoving a nightstick into his stomach over and over and saying he wants a confession and he isn't going to leave Michael alone until he gets one. Damn. So Michael starts crying. Morris puts him back in his seat. And then Chief Morris takes out a gun, opens the chamber, removes five of the bullets, leaves the sixth bullet in, stands each bullet up on the table in front of Michael, and then with the one bullet left in the chamber, closes the chamber and points the gun at Michael. Oh, my God. And he threatens him with playing a game of Russian roulette. So... Morris tells Mike that if he doesn't sign a confession, he'll shoot him. Yeah. And so, of course, Michael self's terrified. He agrees and he starts writing exactly what Chief Morris tells him to write. Right. So after half a page of writing, Morris makes him start over and rewrite the confession, saying something isn't right. So at this point, Officer Mitchell returns to the interrogation room. He's been gone less than an hour, but he now notices a complete change in Michael's self. He sees that he's a nervous wreck and that Morris has had him rewrite this confession several times, which strikes him as odd. By the end of the whole ordeal, Michael Self has written a detailed confession stating that he picked Renee and Sharon up from Sharon's house and that once in the car, he describes giving them beer, offering them weed. He says they take the beer but decline the weed and they drink while he drives them around the Clear Lake area. And then he goes on to write that both girls were, quote, feeling good and getting loud, hanging out of his car window and hollering as he drove them to Clear Lake. And at the lake, he describes having a moment alone with Renee and trying to assault her. She shuts that down. He's angered by the rejection. This is according to his first statement. So he punches Renee in the head. That's when Sharon runs over. So he hits her, too. Then he says he strangles both girls and dumps them somewhere in El Lago. So Michael signs this confession and is promptly taken into custody. There's even despite all those rewrites, though, there's still key inconsistencies with this confession. First, there are no signs of strangulation on either of the remains that had been found that was ruled out as a possible cause of death. Secondly, Sharon's mom says that Michael Self definitely did not pick the girls up from her home. They had hitched a ride with a neighbor. So she knew who the girls rode into Galveston with that day. And then third... The place where he says he dumped the bodies is 20 miles away from where the bodies were actually found. But at this point, Morris says he has his man and Michael Self is taken to jail. Yeah. So three days after this interrogation on June 12th, 1972, against the advice of his attorney, 
he agrees to take a lie detector test. Oh. It's 1972. Yeah. I mean, this is, you know. Uh, but that lawyer knew. He knew. Yeah. For him not to do it. So the test administrator asks Michael if he did indeed kill Renee and Sharon. Michael says yes, that his confession is true. But the test records this as being a lie. Huh. Then they ask Michael um, about more murders that took place in the same area between 1971 and 1972. He claims to have information about those murders as well. But the lie detector test reveals that this, too, is false. Huh. So even though this test points towards Michael's innocence, he's so afraid of Don Morris that he agrees to sign a second confession. Oh, you In this second confession, he says he was driving when he saw Rhonda walking down the road. So he picked her up. Then he drove her to Nassau Bay Yacht Club. Rhonda hopped out, came back with Sharon. Both girls got in the car. So this directly conflicts with this first confession and basically the one that Sharon's mother contradicted. So now it's like they're updating it. Right. Also, in the first confession, he describes punching the girls before strangling them. Um, But in the second, he says he hit Sharon with a Coke bottle and then dumped their bodies in Taylor Bayou. So So he changes the location completely of where he even dumps them. Yeah. So so instead of where it was before, which was essentially kind of like a culvert. Yeah. Now it's where it's near where they were found, where their remains were found. So. These revised statements are more in line with the facts of the case, um, but there's still more inconsistencies that don't add up. Michael goes on to say in his second confession that he stripped the girls' clothing off of them and threw their clothes on the side of the highway, but both girls' bodies were found with clothing on. Still, the confession is accepted. Michael Self remains behind bars, and he's awaiting trial. Then on June 23rd, 1972, about two weeks after his arrest, two Harris County Sheriff's deputies... Deputy Sheriff Frank Beamer and Deputy Sheriff W.A. Turner check Michael Self out of jail, saying they're going to go buy him a hamburger. And they do. But then afterwards, they drive him to each of the various locations that he mentioned in his confession. And they take pictures of him standing in those spots. And this time, Michael Self directs them to a sizzler, saying that's where he originally picked the girls up. So the chief of police in Cleveland, Texas, which is a nearby town, this guy's name is Dave Coburn. He visits Michael Self in jail and Michael Self tells Chief Coburn he didn't murder anybody and goes on to describe the interrogation, the Russian roulette, all the threats Mm -hmm. and how scared he is of Morris. And the thing is that Chief Coburn had actually seen Morris play that same Russian roulette game with a different prisoner the same way Michael Self is describing. Uh-uh. So Colburn's 100% certain that Morris coerced Michael into this false confession. And he tells Michael Self, I will attest to this in court. So Michael Self's murder trial begins on May 15th, 1973. Prosecutors rely heavily on this second written confession to make their case. Because the girl's remains are too decomposed to determine the exact cause of death, there's no physical evidence besides Michael's confession and its alignments with the condition of the girl's remains. The photos the deputy sheriffs Frank Beamer and W.A. Turner took of Michael Self on this kind of location tour mm-hmm. are also presented in court as a third oral confession. Oh, like he took them to those places when really they took him. Yeah, like it was his idea. Uh-huh. So Beamer and Turner tell the court Michael was recounting his every move from the night of the murders as they stopped at each location. This account of Self's 
third oral confession is entered into court without objection. Oops. So things look very bad for Michael Self, but police chief Coburn is prepared to testify that he witnessed Chief Don Morris pull the Russian roulette stunt on another prisoner in 1971, which would be huge for the defense. Coburn is never called to the stand. What? So on September 18th, 1974, the jury finds Michael Lloyd Self guilty of the murder of Sharon Shaw in the first degree. He's sentenced to life in prison. So after this ruling, Michael Self's lawyer immediately files an appeal. He argues, the defense attorney argues that this supposed third confession entered at trial should be inadmissible um, because they illegally removed him from jail. Um, but because Michael willingly agreed to go on that little mm. tour um, and because his third confession was entered with no objection from the defense at the time of trial, the judge maintains that this third confession is admissible. And the court argues that all they need to rule Michael guilty are the properly ID'd remains of the girls and the proof that the victim died by criminal means. Hmm. The court says that because Michael Self's confession aligns with the conditions in which Sharon Shaw's body was found, that's enough to rule her dead by criminal means, even if they don't know the precise cause of death. So on October 9th, 1974, Michael Self's appeal is officially denied and the ruling of his trial stands. Okay. Then on September 17th, 1976, three years after Michael Self's trial began, something happens in the quiet Texas town of Caddo Mills that on its face seems entirely unrelated. Mm -hmm. And so this information is from an article from the New York Times, mm -hmm. but it's also from a 2019 article in the Greenville Herald Banner, where a local named Joe Johnson, who is, I believe, in his early 80s, retells this story by his own firsthand account. He was there the day he like saw this happen okay. to the Rotary Club oh. in, in Greenville. <laughs> so like a reporter went down and wrote a story about the story that Joe tells. Wow. And it's pretty great. OK, here we go. So it's mid-morning in Caddo Mills, this uh -huh. little Texas town. A man named Jerry Woods is walking out of the bank. And when he walks out, he sees two guys walking in. And he noticed they're both wearing surgical gloves. Uh-oh. And Jerry thinks to himself, this can't be good. Yeah. I, I made that up. Of course. He did. Sure. So he stops and watches as they enter the bank and put on ski masks. Oh, dear. So he knows this is a robbery, obviously. So he runs across the street and to find the mayor, Bobby Chapman, and says, hey, the bank's getting <laughs> held up. <laughs> we were just talking about bank robbery. That's weird. Right? Well, that is weird. Small town bank robbery. Small town bank robbery where it's all like, well, you see the bank robbery starting. So you turn and go, uh, do you, who do you want to get? Do you, the mayor's right there. Right. So he grabs the mayor, Bobby Chapman. Um, and so once he tells the mayor that they all head down to Larry Bost's barbershop because they know Larry has a rifle. <laughs> Let's go get the town rifle. Let's go get a rifle. Wow. So when the bank robbers come out of the bank, they see Larry the barber standing there aiming at them with his 30-06. And then Jerry Woods, who went and got his gun out of his truck. Oh and he's God. so basically they're facing one direction and Larry the barber is has his rifle up and then they turn and look and Jerry Woods is aiming from the other direction. So the two robbers went back inside the bank 
they grab the bank receptionist oh, and no. they take her with them. <gasps> but what they don't know is that the bank receptionist also happens to be the, to be the bank president's daughter, 19-year-old Sherry Johnson. Oh, no. So they take her hostage. They shove her into this stolen green Mercury that they that they drove there mm-hmm. and they head out of town. And as they head out, Larry the barber shoots out the front right tire. OK, so they're still going, but their car is pretty screwed up. Yeah. The robbers return fire and shoot out the barbershop window. As they speed out of town. Man. Now, at this point in the article I was reading, Joe, who's telling the story, also says, hey, this was a long time ago. So that I might this might not all be completely accurate, (laughs) which I absolutely love. Yeah. Because that gets reported in in the article. Yeah. He's like, here's how I remember it. Here's how I remember it. That don't mean shit. (laughs) So Larry, the barber and Bobby, the mayor jump into the mayor's car and they take off after these robbers. Mm -hmm. Right. And because it's the 70s back then, everyone has CB radios. Oh, yeah. So there's a CB in the mayor's car and everybody's on their CB. Uh-huh. So the mayor gets on on the CB, spreads the word to be on the lookout for a green Mercury with a, a flat front tire, and they're most likely headed toward the interstate. So he basically, through the CB, the whole town gets this posse up of all. And also there's a bunch of citizens mm-hmm. that were either in the bank or nearby who have now gone like, what the hell is going on? So they ba- basically everyone in town jumps into their trucks and cars with their rifles because it's Texas. It's fucking Texas. It's Texas. They all have their guns with them and on their person. And they start all trying to find these bank robbers. I just wonder if this poor receptionists would have a better chance of survival if they weren't following them well here's what's good the answer is no because at one point they start she later would tell this guy joe they start fighting about what they're supposed to do with her now that there's witnesses and now all this and they end up throwing her out of the car along with one of the pistols that they used in this bank robbery wow and yeah so all right good so even though the pressure was on and that could have gone wrong, yes. it helped her in that in that regard. Great. So they basically pull the car over near an abandoned building. At one point, they try to carjack a guy in a Mustang and it says unsuccessfully, which to me means the guy in the Mustang is like, hold on, let me just grab my rifle <laughs> out of the <laughs> yeah. back seat. Like, like ha- uh, he, they, could, they couldn't win in this town. No, they couldn't. And they end up running across a field with their bag of money and all the citizens chase them down in this field, uh, get them and hold them at gunpoint until Sheriff Wayne Green arrives and arrests them. And it's at this point that everyone learns the identity of these two bank robbers, <gasps> Webster Assistant Police Chief Tommy Deal. <gasps> Dallas County Deputy Sheriff George P. Marshall and the accomplice getaway driver is Webster Police Chief Don Morris. Damn. The Russian roulette man. Damn. Yeah. So it turns out that Don Morris and Tommy Deal are are part of a bank robbing gang who have been sticking up small town banks around Texas since 1972. Holy shit. They're both men are found guilty in this bank robbery. Don Morris is sentenced to 55 years in prison. Tommy Deal gets 30 years. They're both eventually paroled 
Tommy Deal ends up going back to robbing banks and he winds up in federal prison. And he loved that hobby of his. He, lo- he loved it. He was into it. So after these arrests, Michael Self's attorney, Jerry Bernberg, he petitions the court to get Michael a new trial. Yeah. Obviously. Um, because saying obviously if the cops who interrogated Self were proven to be corrupt, then maybe Michael Self has a real shot at getting his case reexamined. Yeah. They have an evidentiary hearing and that goes well. Things are starting to look up. And then nine days before oral arguments, Michael Self gets another lucky break. A man who still remains unidentified walks into the police station in Taylor Lake, Texas, and confesses to killing Sharon and Renee. What? This man's account of what happened is vague and disjointed, but he mentions one key element that the public had no knowledge of and was never made available. Yeah. Uh, He tells police that he tied Sharon and Renee up with black cord, Mm. which was found on the remains Mm. when they were recovered. It's then discovered that this man lives in the same apartment complex as I believe it's as Renee. Oh. And he knows both girls. Oh, so if he would pull over, they wouldn't They'd be like, yeah, I'll take a ride. I know this guy. It's a neighbor. Totally. Yeah. There's just one problem. This man reportedly suffers from psychosis. The officers, as well as the prosecution, say that this the man is not sane and therefore his confession's unreliable and there isn't enough evidence to charge him. So he's never charged. The appeal is denied and Michael Self's conviction is upheld once again. Well, on September 22nd, 1992, Michael tries to make one last appeal for retrial on the grounds that his confession had been coerced, but the court denies it in 93. They say they don't have any evidence of coercion and that Michael willingly went to the police station, made his statement, and they shut the argument down again. After several failed attempts and the court denying him parole, Michael Self is later diagnosed with cancer and he dies behind bars the year 2000 at the age of 53. So there are those and there some of them are family members of the murdered girls who believe that Michael Self was guilty and that justice was served. Mm-hmm. But for those who believe that Michael Self's confessions were coerced, they're left wondering if the real killer is still out there. And then another possible suspect emerges in August of 2015. This is a man at the time. He is 72 years old and his name is Edward Harold Bell. Yikes. So Harold Bell was arrested in 1978 for murdering a 26-year-old Marine named Larry Dickens, who had tried to stop Bell from masturbating in front of a group of teenage girls in Pasadena, Texas. Oh, my God. It's it's such a hideous, crazy story. Yeah. So Harold Bell is sentenced to 70 years in prison for this, this murder. Yeah. In jail, Harold admits to the authorities that he murdered 11 girls prior to his final arrest, and he refers to these victims as the 11 who went to heaven. Oh. In 1998, he writes letters to authorities confessing to seven of these 11 murders, and in them he mentions Sharon Shaw and Renee Johnson by their names. Wow. And yet somehow these letters are kept secret until 2015. Authorities assert that there wasn't enough evidence aside from these letters of confession to charge Bell with any of the murders back in 1998. 
And that's why no one talked about these letters. But once the news breaks that they exist in 2015, they take a closer look. So here's basically the rundown. Okay. Starting in 1966, Harold Bell is arrested multiple times for sex offenses, usually for masturbating in front of young girls. And he is sent to several different psychiatric hospitals over the next four years. In 1970, he seduces and marries a fellow mental patient who is only 17 years Mm. old. And upon his release, Bell and this girl, who is now his wife, move into an apartment along Offutt's Bayou, Uh-oh. which is n- near where that water ski school is. Yeah. Bell becomes a silent partner in the local surf shop where all the water skiers and surf <gasps> kids hang out. Okay. After he's arrested for shooting Larry Dickens in 1978, Harold Bell jumps bail and goes on the run in Mexico and Central America for the next 14 years. Holy shit. So he's Texas most wanted criminal throughout the 80s. And he's finally captured in Panama in 1992. So when his confessional letters about these crimes he committed in the 70s begin to arrive in 1998, authorities dismiss them as the rantings of an attention-seeking sex offender who's trying to get time knocked off his murder Uh, sentence. uh But by the time they're looked at again in 2015, there's so little evidence and eyewitnesses left, including some of the letters themselves that go missing, that it's decided that there's nothing to build a case on. And on April 20th, 2019, Harold Bell dies in prison without ever being charged for any of the 11 murders that he confessed to in detail. I wonder if his DNA is ever put in CODIS because that's a long time to have been out doing fucking who knows what terrible things, most likely. Yeah. Yeah. And this was a this was a very shocking, like, kind of detail because in 1981, Brazoria County Sheriff Lieutenant Matt Wingo, Mm -hmm. he starts counting how many young women have been murdered in this area Mm -hmm. between 1971 and 1981. Twenty (gasps) one young girls were shot and their bodies were dumped into the nearby marshes and bayous between 1971 and 1981. 10 years and 21 young women. Mm -hmm. What the fuck? How did nobody fucking pinpoint that pattern? Like, uh, well, because it's like they were doing it backwards. They were saying, here's the guy we're going to get. And and now this is solved. And it's just that thing of, we talk about police corruption. We talk about people having confessions coerced. And what the thing that seems to get lost in that conversation is, meanwhile, 14 and 15-year-old girls are being plucked off of the street by some guy that no one fucking suspects or no one's doing anything about. And those serial killers are allowed to continue killing at will while they're locking up people whose IQ isn't high enough for them to keep themselves out of jail. Totally. So the convenient person is locked away and and everyone believes that things have been taken care of. Yeah. And then a string of unsolved murders and, you know, and maybe they're runaways or maybe they're kids that hang out at the beach or maybe they're people that don't have city councilmen who right. are grandfathers to advocate for right. them. 
and so they just their their bodies aren't found or their bodies aren't looked for right right so they're killer you know they're forgotten they're forgotten victims or they're quote throwaway victims and yeah and which in the like in the 70s i mean that kind of defined that era totally so as unsatisfying as it is and as infuriating and frustrating as it is that's the tragic story of the murders of Sharon Shaw and Rhonda Renee Johnson. Wow. What a fucking mystery. Like, we'll never know. And Insanity. there's no DNA that you can test, right? Because they've been in the water so long, probably. And- right. I mean, and who would do it? The crooked cops that are fucking holding up, ba- <laughs> who are bank robbers? That's such a bananas twist. I can't. That's that's why I was trying to read that really fast because I was like, "This is a twelve pager," and I do apologize. <laughs> no, you did great. It's it's crazy and it's like it's, it's riveting. It's I wish there was just a system, and maybe with DNA and with the kind of like technology that's coming yeah. out, it gets a, it's getting a little bit less. Um. Like the the human error element, yeah, getting removed. Yeah, you gotta hope. I don't know, but you hope as long as humans are involved, there's gonna be human error. Yeah, true. A lot of it. Well, great job. That was that was fascinating and awful, and you did a good job. Thank you. There's something about the sound of an old-timey cash register that really takes me back. I know. It sounds like someone is about to hand me an ice cream cone, but it also sounds like we just sold some merch. That's right. And if you're a Shopify user like us, you know that this sound means you just made a sale. Shopify has helped millions of businesses sell their products online, but did you know they also offer the same support for brick and mortar stores? From accepting payments to managing inventory, they have everything you need to sell in person. So give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify POS tracks sales across all your locations. That way you'll always know what you have in stock and where. They also provide reliable tech that fits your unique retail needs, like turning a tablet into a credit card reader. And if you're looking to reach new customers, check out Shopify's marketing tools. They're easy to use and they integrate with all social media platforms. With Shopify, we have a powerful partner for managing our sales. And if you're a business owner, you can too. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period today at shopify.com murder and here's the important note that promo code is all lowercase so go to shopify.com slash murder and take your retail business to the next level that's shopify.com slash murder again don't forget the code is all lowercase goodbye this actually weirdly has some similarities to your case Mm -hmm. in it so i'm sure hannah our wonderful producer put these together on purpose We've all heard the words, Karen, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say, Karen, will be used against you in a court of law, blah, 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 blah. We've heard it in many movies and TV shows. It's like the corny line that ends the fucking scene in Law and Order. There are rights. <laughs> there are rights. There are rights. Yeah. So but yeah. you've heard them and maybe some people listening have heard them in real life, which, yes. you know, hey, life happens. But. Many people don't know that the history of the saying actually comes from a specific case of a possibly coerced confession. And the answer to this lies in the U.S. Supreme Court's landmark ruling on Miranda versus Arizona. That's right. Today, I'm going to tell you the history of the Miranda rights. Nice. Okay. 
The sources I use today are an AP staff article, an article written by Ron Dugan for The Republic, the Lewis and Roca Law Firm, The Impact of Miranda Revisited by Richard A. Leo, and the National Constitution Center website. So... Prior to the Miranda versus Arizona ruling, suspects did have a right to remain silent and the right to an attorney, thanks to the Fifth and Sixth Amendments, but that wasn't often relayed before interrogation. Uh, at the time, police procedures, when getting a suspect to confess, often implemented really aggressive tactics, the third degree, mm-hmm. that sort of thing, as we just heard in your story. Yeah. And relied on manipulation, strong arming the suspects, and it often led to false confessions uh, and many subsequent wrongfully convicted people. One example is the case of Brown versus Mississippi. On March 30th, 1934, a man named Raymond Stewart, who was a white farmer, was murdered in Kemper County, Mississippi. Three black tenant farmers, Arthur Ellington, Ed Brown, and Henry Shields, were arrested for his murder and subsequently confessed. At trial, that confession was the prosecution's only evidence to the three men's guilt. But the defense didn't deny that the three men had confessed, um, but that they did so only after being subjected to brutal beatings by the officers. Quote, the defendants were made to strip and they were laid over chairs and their backs were cut to pieces with a leather strap with buckles on it. And they were likewise made to understand that the whippings would be continued unless and until they confessed. So one defendant had also been strung up by his neck from a tree in addition to the whippings. Mm. The defendants were convicted by a jury based on their coerced confessions and sentenced to be hanged. But later, the court revised the conviction, saying that when a confession is extracted by police violence, it cannot be entered as evidence. Ultimately, the three defendants pleaded nolo contendere to manslaughter rather than risk uh, retrial. And they were sentenced to six months, two and one half years and seven and one half years in prison, respectively. (sighs) Yeah. So despite there being no other evidence against them. So police officers didn't have to make sure the suspects knew about or understood their Fifth and Sixth Amendment rights. They just had to make sure any confessions were made, quote, voluntarily. And that's what Phoenix police allegedly thought they were getting on March 13th, 1963, when they got a confession out of Ernesto Miranda. So in March 1963, an 18-year-old woman who was referred to by the pseudonym Patricia Weir is kidnapped, bound, and raped in Phoenix, Arizona. She goes to the police and tells them that the perpetrator's car is green or gray with dark striped upholstery inside and that the car smelled of turpentine, which is such a creepy, awful detail. Yeah. Yeah. Around a week later, a family member of Patricia sees a car that matches the description of the perpetrator's car. He writes down part of the license plate. Um, and the family member then goes to the detective in charge, Carol Cooley, and gives him the partial license plate number and tells him that he thinks the car is a 1953 Packard. So Cooley runs the partial in the system and finds around a thousand or something license plates in Arizona. But then there is one car that's a 1953 Packard. So he looks up the owner's name and finds that it's Ernesto Miranda. Cooley notices Ernesto has a criminal history, including robbery and attempted rape. And Cooley thinks Ernesto seems like a solid suspect for the kidnapping and rape of Patricia. 
23-year-old Ernesto, who was born in Mesa in 1941 and had only an eighth grade education, has a long criminal history. So I'm just going to do a quick summary of it. So like part of the story is that this isn't a great guy and he actually might have been guilty of this. He has a long criminal history. He was arrested for his first felony when he was in eighth grade. A few months later, Ernesto was arrested for burglary and sent to a school for delinquent children. Two months after he left school, he was charged with attempted rape and assault. When he got out of prison, he continued getting charged with crimes like peeping, armed robbery, and stealing cars. He was in and out of prison. But in March 1963, he was free and was living with his girlfriend. So Ernesto wasn't the best guy that ever lived. But that doesn't mean he didn't have rights. So on March 13th, Cooley goes to Ernesto and his girlfriend's house. She opens the door holding their baby. There are other kids around her. And so Cooley asks for Ernesto. He comes out of the bedroom, had just woken up, and he says, Cooley tells him he doesn't want to talk to him in front of his family. Will he come down to police station? Ernesto agrees. He's not handcuffed because he isn't under arrest and he's not told he has the right to remain silent or to an attorney because he's it isn't the law at the time. Mm -hmm. Once they're at the station, a sergeant tells Cooley that there is an unsolved robbery where the suspect also matches Ernesto's description. And so the sergeant tells Cooley to talk to Ernesto about the robbery in addition to the rape of Patricia. So Patricia's brought in to view a lineup and so is the unsolved robbery victim. And a woman named Barbara McDaniel. And both women view the lineup and pick Ernesto out. I think it was only four men. They say he, quote, looks like the perpetrator, not that he is for sure the guy, which I guess what, what from what I read is pretty typical with suspect lineups. When the lineup is done, Ernesto asked how he did. And Cooley says he was picked out by both victims. Cooley asks Ernesto to write out a confession for both crimes. So in the 1960s, typical interrogation tactics included isolating the accused in a cell in solitary confinement. They also would shine bright lights in their face for hours um, and then deprive them, the you know, contact with a lawyer or any family members. And so although he was only questioned for two hours and some say Ernesto may have been harassed into his confession, although Cooley calls total bullshit on that, he does write out his own confession. At the top of each page, there's a printed certification that he signs. It reads, quote, this statement is voluntary and of my own free will with no threats, coercion or promises of immunity and with full knowledge of my legal rights, understanding any statement I make may be used against me, which is like kid had an eighth grade education. So he may not have understood that at all. Also, uh, I can't tell you how many things I sign without reading <laughs> the small, the fine print. Everything. But I feel like if we were in a police station. Oh, the pressure. And like, you know, that he wasn't by himself. Like they didn't say, take your time and really right. go over that. Right. It was like there was probably someone standing right behind him or, you know what I mean? It just like sign yeah. here, sign here. And you don't even get to read it. Which is why, like, that's what a lawyer is for is they actually understand all that stuff, which is why it's so important, even if you are innocent, to have a lawyer there because you you still have to sign shit to get out of there. Yes. You know? Yeah. You need someone familiar with the documents. With the law. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> with your rights. With your rights. But but maybe you don't have any because it's the 60s. Um, but the statement isn't exactly true because Ernesto hasn't been informed of his right to remain silent or to have an attorney present. So Ernesto later said he was told the robbery charges would be dropped if he confessed to the kidnapping charge. And that's why he confessed. So it almost seems like from what I've read, there's no part of him saying, wait, I didn't do it. 
you know, maybe I was just kind of bargaining. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe he was guilty and he was bargaining, you know, which some maybe a defense attorney would have done. But I'm not I can't say for certain that he was guilty, but nothing in the stuff I've read says that he tried to convince anyone he wasn't. I mean, I kind of I like the point you're making, though, which is the the aim is not perfection, right? Because that's not you don't have to earn your rights. You get them automatically. Right. Right. But when he's arraigned, uh, Ernesto finds out the robbery charge hasn't been dropped. He asks for an attorney multiple times and doesn't get one for two weeks. When it comes time for Ernesto to face a trial for the kidnapping and rape of Patricia, Ernesto's attorney objects to Ernesto's written confession being entered into evidence. The attorney says that the Supreme Court has previously ruled that a suspect is entitled to an attorney during interrogation. The judge overrules the objection. Confession is entered into evidence and Ernesto Miranda is found guilty of rape and kidnapping and is sentenced to 20 to 30 years for each conviction. So Ernesto appeals to the Arizona Supreme Court, but they affirm his sentence. And then in June of 1965, Ernesto requests that the U.S. Supreme Court review his case. The ACLU finds out about it and asks multiple attorneys from the Lewis and Roca law firm in Phoenix to represent him pro bono. And Phoenix lawyers John P. Frank and John J. Flynn agree to take the case, arguing that Miranda's confession was obtained using intolerable and unlawful interrogation techniques. And they agree to write a petition to the Supreme Court, arguing that his Fifth Amendment's rights were violated. Supreme Court, I guess, has a few of these, or a lot of these cases, and they decide to address four cases involving um, these rights at once, and then by consolidating them into one ruling. So in each case, the defendant was questioned by police in, quote, a room in which he was cut off from the outside world. The defendants were never given, quote, full and effective warning of their rights or the interrogation, and the questioning led to signed statements that were admitted at trial. So Ernesto is one of four cases selected for review. The others are Roy Stewart, Michael Vignera, and Carl Westover. And you don't recognize any of those names. And the reason we hear it as the Miranda rights is because his last name was first alphabetically. <laughs> like that's fucking it. So yeah. it could have been the Westover rights yep. or the fucking Stewart rights, <laughs> which is like, what the fuck? I don't know. There's such a weird little detail about it. So on June 13th, 1966, in a five to four decision, the Supreme Court overturns all of their convictions. Mm -hmm. The other ones are all kind of for robberies and that sort of thing. Um, The court rules that no confession is admissible in court if a suspect was not made clear of their rights before the interrogation began. The suspect has to be clearly informed of their right to remain silent and that anything they say will be used against them in court and that they have the right to an attorney. If they can't afford one, an attorney will be appointed to them, you know. Those the Miranda rights. That's right. The <laughs> that's things right. we always hear. The court's ruling is controversial. It's opposed by, of course, the police who are like, how are we going to get a confession if we can't strong arm them? Prosecutors, the media, politicians, they call for um, Chief Justice Earl Warren's impeachment, who was in charge of the Supreme Court decision. Police officers believe they will not be able to get a confession once if they know their rights. Yeah. <laughs> Which is like, well, that's the fucking point of this yeah. whole entire thing. Right. The ruling completely changes how law enforcement goes about obtaining confessions in like just landmark case. Following the Supreme Court's decision, the police departments create Miranda warning cards. So they give all the officers these cards to carry around with them. And the words contain the now famous Miranda rights. 
In February 1967, Ernesto Miranda is retried for the rape and kidnapping charges. This time, his signed confession is not entered into evidence, but he's still found guilty and sentenced to 20 years for each conviction. Hmm. So, yeah. Ernesto Miranda is paroled in December 1972. So, so much for those 20 to fucking 30 years, right? But on the outside, he's famous. In prison, he was famous. Like one time they said something about in the news that someone was read their Miranda rights and everyone in the cell block cheered. (laughs) Um, So on the outside, he's famous. He autographs Miranda warning cards for $1.50 each. Almost immediately after being released on parole, he violates his parole, sent back to prison, released again in December 1975. On January 31st, 1976, Ernesto's involved in a bar fight in Phoenix at this dive bar called La Ampalo after a card game goes wrong, you know, that sort of thing. A man named Ezequiel Moreno Perez ends up stabbing Ernesto multiple times. And by the time um, the paramedics arrive, 34-year-old Ernesto Miranda is dead. Whoa. Yeah. Police find Moreno at a nearby motel, read him his Miranda rights. (sighs) Ironically, ironically, but um, they don't take him into custody. He flees. He's never found. Whoa. I know. Uh, And today, the Miranda rights are one of the most recognizable and influential legal decisions in modern policing. And that is the story of Ernesto Miranda and the Miranda rights. You know, what blows my mind is because I it feels like these days when things need to change Mm -hmm. or there's big kind of like overhaul type things. Mm -hmm. We all and I mean, I'll just speak for myself. I'm always just like, they'll never do that. That'll never happen. Because nobody wants that point of time to be like so now we've made it so that you have to read them their rights now you have to do it yeah especially to a group of people like the police yeah they're the ones who tell other people what to right. do and suddenly they have people telling them and their argument is like we're trying to keep these criminals off of your street so they won't hurt you like we're trying to do the right thing in their minds of course you know right that's what they think and now you're impeding that by putting these rules which is like well no fucking group can be unpoliced and, yes. and keep people safe. It's like yes. the, the point is public safety and you can't do that by any means necessary or there's because absolute power corrupts uh, absolutely. And then right. suddenly you have the all I could think of as you were telling that story was that horrifying scene from L.A. Confidential where they have all those boys that young black kids that get arrested yeah. because that that girl is raped right. and they find and they separate all of them and they do uh, they do the third degree yeah and it is so disturbing yep. and it is so scary yeah and of course it works and they were innocent and there's case after case especially of people of color who that third degree is used with that with impunity and there's so many false confessions because of it. And of that is, and that means the person who actually committed the crime goes free. Yes. And how is that keeping our streets safe and right. the public safe if that's what's happening? Yeah. If you can just beat the shit out of someone <laughs> and make them do what you want. Yeah. Yes, you're going to get this thing done in front of you right now. But yeah. ultimately, you're going to still have 21 teenage girls murdered between yeah. 1971 and 1981 in the Galveston area because you quote unquote took care of it. Yeah, because you scared the ever loving shit out of a suspect with 
who didn't know any better, who had no representation, you pointed a gun at their head. Yeah. Like, who the f- I would confess to something if someone put, put, put a gun in my head. Well, that's great. I'm, that's fascinating information. And it's the kind of stuff like that I would have, if you had asked me, I would have said, Oh, yeah, I know. I know about that. Yeah. And I know, I do. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I just found out about it a couple of years ago and I was like, Yeah, I guess that would make sense that the name Miranda isn't just a made up word. Like it's, it's so much in our lexicon that we don't even consider the fact that it's actually someone's name because of a Kate, a court case. Yeah. Funny. Yeah. Nice uh, one. Thank you. Um, thank you guys. As always and forever for listening. Thank you for sending your air fryer recipes. <laughs> for actually, thank you for commenting on our Instagram post with your air fryer recipes and tips and tricks. That I, I are, you, are you driving people to social I media? Am, your air fryer social media. I am asking. Go to my favorite murder at Gmail. No, are no. You starting go to my a, favorite a new Finsta. That's all your air fryer. It's your air fryer. <laughs> Georgia and her air fryer. <laughs> A tale of this is going to be the one that takes off. That's right. This is my side hustle, baby. No, go to my favorite murder and please comment with your favorite air fryer. <laughs> so ridiculous for your favorite, your favorite air fryer recipe and or your favorite creepy slash unbelievable thing you saw at a mall. That's right. We need this content, guys. We just want interaction. That's right. We're all and so engagement. Bored. That's right. That's what it's all about. We want to be air fryer influencers <laughs> that is our that's been the end goal for five fucking six almost six god almost six years before it even existed yeah that's right it's all come to this what a beautiful <laughs> realization for all of us <laughs> um well thanks for listening stay sexy and don't get murdered goodbye, goodbye. elvis do you want a cookie This has been an Exactly Right production. Our producer is Hannah Kyle Crichton. Associate producer, Alejandra Keck. Engineer and mixer, Stephen Ray Morris. Researchers, Jay Elias and Haley Gray. Send us your hometowns and your fucking hoorays at myfavoritemurder at gmail.com. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at myfavoritemurder and Twitter at myfavemurder. And for more information about this podcast, our live shows, merch, or to join the fan cult, go to myfavoritemurder.com. Rate, review, and subscribe.